Morning, church family. Good morning. Today, I am super excited to let you know we're going to be starting our Mark series. And for the next several months, we're just going to be staring at the face of Jesus Christ through the gospel of Mark. And we're going to go through verse by verse, week after week, God willing, and preach about Jesus Christ. And uh, this is a little unique because we're primarily going to just cover one Bible verse today. Mark 1, verse 1. We might get to verse 3, but Mark 1, verse 1 is primarily what we're going to uh, preach on. But before we even get there, I thought it would be profitable to be able to spend some time on the background of Mark. And so this is going to be a little bit unusual because we're going to spend some extra time and perhaps even spend half the pulpit time talking about the background of this book because it's going to set the whole stage as we go through the Gospel of Mark. Okay, so, and the first topic or item to discuss is the author. The author. Who wrote the Gospel of Mark? Well, it's in the name. Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark. But how do we know that? And why do we feel so sure about that? Is uh, early church fathers such, such as Papias affirm Mark's uh, apostleship of, uh, I mean, authorship of this book? And so Mark is, is the author or otherwise known as John Mark sometimes, and but Mark is what we'll call him. And he was a very unlikely figure to author the second book of the New Testament, the Gospel of Mark. And providence was all over his life. And I, I believe as we dive into the life of Mark, so this is going to be quite devotional for all of us and very devotional for me as I got to learn more about him. First of all, Mark was not an apostle. He wasn't like Peter. He wasn't like uh, Matthew. He was just a member of the early church. He was not even a preacher. The Bible says he was a helper. And Mark didn't even have a clean track record. So interesting. However, God uniquely qualified him to write the Gospel of Mark, all about Jesus Christ. So we're going to take a journey through his life some, and we're going to bounce around through Scripture to Scripture. And, and you know, if, you, if you'd like to take notes, I'll try to be slow in t- giving the passage so you can look it up later. But it's in your app as well, I believe. I put it in your notes. And so first of all, he was a well-connected man with the le- early leaders of the church. For example, he, in, in uh, Colossians, says that he was a cousin to Barnabas. Barnabas is one of the great missionaries that Paul teamed up with, and we'll talk a little bit more about him. But his story, Mark's story, goes back to Jerusalem, okay, where it all started, where Pentecost happened. And his mother was a leader and a giver to the early church, and she would offer up her home to get to do prayer meetings. And example of this is when persecution was rising up in Jerusalem. Sadly, Stephen was stoned to death in Acts 7. And then in Acts chapter 12, we'll be looking at 12 a little bit, James, the brother of John, was killed by the sword. So persecution is ramping up. And King Herod recognized that this was pleasing the Jews, so they arrested Peter, the leader of the disciples. And he was arrested, and the Bible says in Acts 12 that he was chained in between two guards, And he was asleep in the middle of the night. And then the Lord sends an angel to free him. And miraculously, the chains fall off. The gates are open, wide open. 
But Peter was able to walk through, uh, walk by guards. And this was in the middle of the night. So Peter was a little bit groggy thinking, is this really happening? Is this just a vision or am I just dreaming this? Sure enough, he comes to his senses and he realizes that he wasn't dreaming. And where does he go? Acts 12, 12 says this. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary. Who's Mary? A lot of Marys in the Bible. Which Mary is this? The mother of John, who was also called Mark. So Mark, John Mark had a mother named Mary. And she had a home. And guess what they're doing? They're praying for Peter's deliverance. They're having a prayer meeting, gathering for Peter, their leader, where many were gathered together and were praying. And Peter knocks, knocks on the door. He's knocking on the door, and a servant girl comes up and says, Who are you? And says, This is Peter. And so she goes back, back into the prayer room and says, Guess what? Our prayers have been answered. Peter's at the door. She says, You're crazy. <laughs> and sure enough, they let him in, and they see that Peter's there. And likely, so why are we talking about Peter? John Mark, or Mark was probably there praying for Peter, and he likely knew Peter and, and sat under Peter's teaching for quite some time. And then providentially, Paul and Barnabas, Mark, John Mark's cousin, Barnabas, were in Jerusalem. And then they decide to bring John Mark or Mark back with them to Antioch, which is north of Jerusalem. And basically, he gets to join the dream team. He gets to join the all-time, perhaps, missionary team of Paul and Barnabas. And he gets to join their team and say he was a good helper to them. What an opportunity of a lifetime. And then the first missionary journey in Acts 13 happens. And Paul and Barnabas decide to bring him along on that missionary journey. And this was a significant missionary journey. This is where Paul and Barnabas were going to preach the gospel to the Gentile world, non-Jewish world. This is a significant trip, and Mark gets to be part of this. Can you imagine that? And then Mark's low point takes place. Acts 13, 13 says that during the middle of the trip, right as they're getting to the mainland of uh, Asia Minor, for whatever reason, the Bible doesn't say Mark decides to abandon ship and go back home to Jerusalem. Doesn't say much why, but this was not a good thing in the eyes of some of the leaders. So Paul and Barnabas continue on with their first missionary journey. Many come to Christ, they're planting churches, they're encouraging the Christians, they're teaching, they're preaching, and they finally get back to Antioch. And then given some time, Acts 15... Um, 36, Paul tells Barnabas, let's go back and encourage the Christians that we visited earlier in our first journey. So Barnabas, so sure, the son of encouragement, goes, okay, let's do it. But by the way, Paul, I'd like to bring Mark with us. Well, let's see how Paul responded here in Acts 15, 38. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia. Deserted them. And the Bible says right here that he kept insisting, meaning this was a big discussion, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Barnabas had conviction. Paul had his convictions. And rightfully so. Paul, I would understand why Paul wouldn't want to bring him along. 
And you want to bring faithful men and women with, along with you. And Paul, had, uh, Paul saw that he had his chance. And he wasn't quite cut out for the difficult road of missionary work on the road. And then verse 39, look what happened. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas, the dream team. That they separated from one another. God providentially separates the team. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. So Barnabas takes on uh, John Mark. And Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. And they went on their journey, on the second missionary journey. This was significant. This was significant because this figure, Mark, dissolved perhaps the greatest team to assemble greatest tag team to assemble and and this resulted in a relational rift between Paul and Mark and we understand this I mean I'm like well you abandoned us okay you weren't quite faithful in your missionary role that we you're entrusted with and not only that this caused a huge rift between or divide with Paul and Barnabas that would create some tension I would understand that we would understand that you know however that wasn't the end of the story there was reconciliation. Second Timothy, if you want to take note, Second Timothy four, Second Timothy four. At the, this is a Paul's goodbye letter, and Paul was near nearing the end of his life, and he reached out to his most dearest relationships, and that's what you do, right? Any of us who had a chance to visit anyone on their deathbed, you have family, you have close friends around. This is who you want around you. And, and so Paul writes to Timothy, his beloved son, the one who he mentored, the one that has been super loyal to Paul, and goes, come visit me. Come visit me. Come visit me. And he says, make every effort to come to me soon. Second uh, Timothy 4, 9. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me. So this is the first time and the only time that Paul will be deserted. Demas as well. And gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia. Titus to Demaltia. Only Luke is with me. Dr. Luke who wrote Acts. And the Gospel of Luke is with Paul. But look what he says. Pick up Mark and bring him with you. For he is useful to me for service. He asked Mark to come. Isn't that interesting? He reaches out to Timothy to get Mark to come visit. In ministry, there is going to be difficulty in relationships. I understand this. Uh, I've encountered many difficulties in relationships. I know you have too. I mean, this is just part of the Christian life in the in the local church. And uh, we're, we're all, since we're all recovering sinners in the church, amen. We're all we all bring our stuff to the table. We all affect each other in different ways. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally, sometimes sinfully, or just sometimes just culturally, we just say things or do things that rub each other the wrong way. All right, we get this, and there's conflict. But God is a God of reconciliation, and He restored their relationship. You've just even in my own life, I've been praying for relationships to be reconciled, ministry-related uh, 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 relationships. I get this. That, this is very super encouraging to me to see how Paul and Mark eventually get back together. But now, what does this got to do with writing of uh, writing of this book here for Mark? Well, let's just keep going. Mark's restoration. Now, let's focus on Mark's restoration. See, Peter steps into the picture, and I, I talked about Peter initially, and there's a reason why. Paul, P- 
Peter and Mark had a relationship. Peter obviously had a great fondness and respect for uh, for Mark's mother. Mark's mother was a ministry uh, helper for Peter. And they probably had a relationship. But Peter steps into the picture. And Mark would team up with Peter. He, he left Paul and Barnabas and then teamed up with Barnabas. And then eventually he would team up with Peter. I told you he was a well-connected person in the church. And uh, amazing, amazing. God gifted him with all these blessings. And, but God knows what we all need. As you're sitting here right now, God knows exactly what you need spiritually. Whatever it may be going, whatever it may be going through in your mind and your heart right now. God definitely knew what Mark needed. He needed restoration. He needed restoration to be effective in ministry. So Peter would be the first one who would understand the need for restoration. Amen? So any of us who know the story of Peter, Peter, after all, was the one famously boasting that he would never leave the Lord. He would never abandon Jesus. Lord, I would never. All these others may, but I will never leave you, Peter said confidently. Well, we know that he would flee and deny knowing the Lord the night that the Lord was arrested. Right? We know this story. And we know how low Peter felt. Peter would never forget how low he felt in that moment. Never. Never, never. He would never forget the sound of the rooster crowing in the background. That is seared into his memory. He would never forget that jolt that he felt in his heart as he made eye contact with the arrested Lord who promised, who he promised, I will never leave you. He would never forget that. That was his low point. And Peter probably thought the same thing that Mark did. I'll never be used by the Lord again. I let him down. I let him down. Well, after Peter deserted Jesus, Jesus resurrects from the grave after being crucified. And then John 21, one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, the Redeemer comes for Peter. And Jesus would take his time, his personal care, to come after his man and restore Peter on the very shores when he originally called Peter into service. Jesus' kindness would capture Peter's heart forever, and therefore Peter would be prepared to restore Mark, you know, to comfort him, to help him. And so let's turn to 1 Peter 5. 1 Peter 5, turn right to your Bible from 2 Timothy, a few books. 1 Peter 5, verse 13. 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Peter's writing from Rome. Peter is writing to encourage persecuted Christians because persecution is ramping up in the empire of Rome. Emperor Nero would be launching a massive assault against Christians soon. So Peter uses code word here, code words, so to speak, to communicate to the, to the church to not cause any extra attention to come to workers on the, on the ground. Verse 13, she, that's talking about the church, who is in Babylon. Babylon is probably a code word for Rome. The church in Rome, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. Sends them greetings to Christians around the, probably in Asia Minor, that area. And so does my son, who? Mark. Mark. 
And as Pastor Jeremy prayed, what an opportunity to be a spiritual father, spiritual mother to many in the church. Peter evidently became a spiritual father to Mark. And undoubtedly, those two spent a lot of spiritual father, spiritual son time together. And undoubtedly, Peter would spend many hours talking to Mark about Jesus Christ. And how Jesus discipled him and and all the various stories. See, ministry is difficult and we all need second chances. All of us need second chances. And Mark's story is very devotional for me. As I, as I just kind of learned, let me, let, let's see how, learn more about the background of this book as I dove into the, the life of Mark. This is super encouraging to me. Because I know I've made many mistakes. I know as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, I've made many mistakes. You know, I haven't done everything perfectly. I've experienced difficult relationships. But I also, as a pastor of the church, I know through intimate sharing to just human nature in general that many here had made mistakes, many mistakes perhaps. And I know that many of us have perhaps even deserted our roles that God has called us to do, right? And many of us have broken relationships within the church or with family members, maybe with children, with spouses, whoever. We all, we're all part of that. We're all, we all can relate in that way. But just as a word of encouragement before we get into the sermon, it's not over yet. Evidently, Mark's story wasn't over after the split between Paul and Barnabas. There was more. Mark was reconciled to Paul, and somehow he gets connected with Peter, and somehow God gives him a, a job of a lifetime beyond being a missionary to document the life of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. Who would have known Mark would have been chosen for something like this? It's not over yet, church. It's not over yet. And undoubtedly, I'm sure Mark addressed the issues that that he was dealing with, and he simply repented. He believed in the good news of Jesus Christ. He repented. And so if you're in this Mark moment, you know, if you've offended the Lord or someone, simply repent. Repent. Repent to the Lord, repent to anyone else that you need to repent to. Or you may be in that unique Peter-like position to help someone get restored. Because you can relate, you understand, you have that heart. This is the church. This is the church. This is the church. This is the role of the church. And so, anyhow, let's get going to Mark now. That, I, I thought that was necessary for me to kind of paint a picture of in the style of how Mark would be written and providentially, God uses the ups and downs of Mark's life. I mean, he obviously he had some, and we all have them. And the Lord uniquely prepared him to write the story of Mark. And Mark had a personal understanding of the need for restoration. He understood the power of discipleship. I mean, he, he was teamed up with Paul, Barnabas, and Peter, and whoever else. He understood that. He experienced that. He understood that, that who the life of Christ was about through the intimate years that he spent with Peter. And so he writes a gospel account of Jesus Christ through the eyes of Peter. 
So Mark is writing, and Mark, his personality probably show up in some places, but Peter is speaking through Mark. And so the style of writing is going to be very unique to what Peter remembered about the Lord. And the Gospel of Mark is unique from the three. Matthew is written from a Jewish perspective, dominated by Jesus' teachings and parables, and the emphasis is Jesus' kingship. Luke is written from a Gentile perspective. Dr. Luke wrote this gospel, and similar to Matthew, many of Jesus' teachings, parables, but the emphasis is that Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Savior of the world. And John, perhaps some of our favorite favorites in terms of the books of the Bible, John was written last. John was written when the Apostle John, the one whom Jesus loved, it was writing backwards as an older man. Decades, maybe 40 years later, maybe even more, towards the end of John's life. And the Gospel of John emphasized the theology of Christ, who he is, he's God. Incredible deep theology, rich theology about the person of Jesus Christ. And probably is the most, it not probably, is the most unique of the four Gospels. Mark now is the shortest Gospel, 16 chapters, where the others go into the 20s, 20 pluses, and Mark writes from Rome to Roman Christians, probably, or Gentile Christians, non-Jewish Christians. And this is similar to Matthew and Luke. There's some similarities, but this is a more shorter, concise version of those Gospels. And mostly narrative, mostly quick little stories, quick stories with some teaching sprinkled in in between some of the stories. And it's very action-oriented. Like I said, from Peter's perspective, I see a lot of Peter's personality, somewhat impulsive, bah, 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 moving from back and forth. And sometimes some of the stories aren't even connected. So the, the, this gospel keeps us moving. Immediately, 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 immediately. This, is, this word is used 40 times in the gospel. It keeps the attention of the readers. Like it moves from one place to the next. And... Um, Pastor Victor says it's like a blog-like look of these stories, you know, like quick short stories. Right? That's what he kind of described it to me. And these are, which provide little snapshot pictures. You know, you get like, like your iPhone, you get a quick picture, quick picture, quick picture. And what it does is when you put it all together, Mark presents a collage or a mosaic of Jesus Christ. And this is what we're going to be looking at. And the emphasis is on who Jesus is, and the emphasis on discipleship. Those two things, those two things are going to come out very clear as we journey through the Gospel of Mark. And there's three major settings here that this Gospel set in. Chapter 1 and part, part, partly of chapter 8 is set in Galilee. This is northern Israel, where the Sea of Galilee is. And Jesus is basically telling the world who he is. This is a very powerful portion, miracles, teachings, other stories. The next portion is shorter from part of chapter 8 to chapter 10 is when Jesus is traveling with the disciples. And ultimately they get to their final location. And during his travels, he notices, and of course he's God, so he knows, that the disciples are struggling, wrestling with who Jesus is. You know, this is where some of those monumental moments, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, that comes out of Peter's mouth. And then the final scene is set in Jerusalem. So they travel up and they travel back down to Jerusalem 
That's chapters 11 through 16, and this is where Jesus prepares to go to the cross to pay for the sins of man and, to, and where he resurrects from the grave. Okay, so that's, that sets the tone here. I told you we're going to take some time. Hopefully that was helpful, hopefully even devotional as we looked at the life of Mark. So we're going to turn to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Let's just rise for the reading of Scripture, shall we? For that one verse. But this verse is a monumental verse, and it'll take us to the rest of the sermon here. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the life of Mark. Thank you for Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and everyone leading us up to this point that we're at this stage of the life of the church here. Thank you, Father. I pray your spirit allow me to preach your word faithfully. And I pray your word would be, by your spirit, embedded into our hearts so that we will see your son more. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. The title of the sermon here, which will be a shorter sermon, we're covering one verse, the beginning of good news. The beginning of good news. And perhaps bad news spurred on the writing of the good news. What I mean by that is that while... While Mark was with Peter in Rome, Mark probably could see the storms of persecution brewing and forming. Dark clouds are starting to form. And like I said, Emperor Nero, the Emperor of Rome, would launch a, a merciless, evil assault against Christians. Christians were arrested. Christians were burned alive. Christians were fed to wild animals to be eaten alive. Christians were crucified. This is what was about to happen. And so Christians needed encouragement. So perhaps this is what motivated Mark to write this gospel. So today, I mean, bad news is everywhere we look. We're talking about good news today, but today everywhere we look, there's bad news. All you got to do is turn on your computer. Turn on the news. Bad news. Nations are at war. Our nation seems divided. We have economic troubles. There's homelessness everywhere you look. Everywhere you look. No matter what city you go to, you can see people walking around, camped out in corners. I mean, it's, it's a reminder of the condition of our times in some ways. We could feel the anti-Christian sentiment just being laid into the fabric of our culture and our nation. We get this. We get this. Will we ever get to the place where Nero was? I don't know, but... Slowly but surely, we're moving in that direction, steadily. So we all need to hear good news. We all need to hear good news. And Mark 1, verse 1, is really the heading for the entire book. This is the thesis statement, the heading, the one-liner that tells you what the essence of the gospel Mark is about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In the beginning... In that sense, the gospel just simply means good news for, for those of us who don't know that yet. Gospel simply means good news. And so point number one, the good news begins with a person, Jesus Christ. Straightforward out of verse one, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It could be, it could be translated the beginning of the good news about Jesus Christ. That's perhaps how you could uh, uh, translate this is When it says the gospel, it's not necessarily talking about the book the gospel of Mark, gospel of Matthew, or a message of the gospel, the salvific message of the gospel. This is just simply saying the good news that Jesus Christ came to earth. 
And the spotlight from heaven is highlighted in one central figure. I mean, it's shining brightly on Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ is the good news. And when the Father sent the Son, God the Son to earth to to take on human skin, human flesh, to live with amongst us, good news started when Jesus Christ showed up. And many of us, all of us here have heard his name. You don't even have to be a Christian to know about Jesus Christ or at least hear the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, he dominates uh, our culture for the last 2,000 years. No matter what nation you go to, people, there's a good chance have heard the name of Jesus Christ. But there is power in the name, not just because it's Jesus Christ, but when we understand the meaning of his name, we're going to take a kind of a little bit of a deeper look into what Jesus Christ means. Jesus is the human name given for the Savior. Jesus Jesus is the Greek word of the Greek translation for the Hebrew name Joshua. Yeshua, Joshua. And Joshua simply means the Lord is salvation. That's powerful right there. Joshua or Jesus means the Lord is salvation. In other words, God saves, okay? If you could remember that, God saves. Jesus means God saves. And God the Father named him Jesus specifically. To let the world know that God saves. Matthew verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 20, in the middle says, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Matthew 1, 20. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear his son, that's Jesus, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus. What does that mean? God what? God saves. God saves. Christ. Now Christ is not his last name. It's not like saying Jesus Smith or Jesus Seto, right? It's not his last name. I needed to be told that too at one time, so that's, that's why I say that. And It's his title. It's his title. It's his title. Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Messiah. And the Messiah or the anointed one would be the deliverer of Israel. So you could say Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the anointed one, the deliverer of, of Israel or deliverer of the world. And so Jesus or Joshua is a very common name for the, for the Jews as they're looking forward to a coming deliverer. And so when you add Jesus plus Christ, that pinpoints exactly who we're talking about. You may be talking about a Jesus, you know, back then or even now, but none of them are Jesus Christ. There's only one. There are many Jesuses, but only one Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, pinpoints exactly who we're talking about. There's one and only. In Acts 10, I want to take a look at Acts 10, one of Peter's sermons. Peter preaches to the Gentiles. Gentiles meaning non-Jewish people. That's most of us in here, I think. And uh, he preaches a sermon to the Gentiles about Jesus Christ. And he basically gives us the theology of who Jesus is and what he has come to do. Let's, Acts ten thirty-eight. 
You know Jesus of Nazareth. So Jesus, I mean, Peter gets very specific. What's Jesus? Jesus of Nazareth, from Nazareth. How God anointed him. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ with the, with the Holy Spirit and with power. The Holy Spirit came upon Christ, Jesus, and he was anointed with power. And how he, back to Peter, on how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Peter's identifying who Jesus is. Verse 39, we are witnesses of all the things he did, both in, in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Jesus Christ was crucified. This Jesus of Nazareth, who, be, who would later be known as Jesus Christ, was crucified on the cross for the sins of man. Jesus Christ paid the eternal punishment that you and I deserve by dying and going on the cross. As basic and as fundamental as that is, this is the type of message that Peter focused in on in his sermons. In verse 40, but he didn't say dead. God raised him up on the third day. We celebrated Easter last Lord's Day. That's why we call today the Lord's Day, because this is the day, the first day of the week that Jesus Christ resurrected. In some ways, we celebrate Easter, the resurrection of Christ, every Lord's Day, every Sunday. And granted that he, Jesus, become visible, the resurrected, bodily resurrected Lord be visible, not to all the people, but remember like last week, we talked about, but to witness, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. He hung out with the apostles. And look at this, verse 42. And we'll stop at verse 43 of this portion. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one, Jesus Christ, this is the one, Jesus of Nazareth is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. In other words, what you do with Jesus will judge you into eternal life or eternal death. You hear what I'm saying there? This is what the Bible is saying. Jesus says, those who believe will be forgiven. Those who do not believe will be judged. Verse 43, of, all, of him, all the prophets bear witness, that just like the Isaiah portion that Pastor Jeremy read, that through his name, through the name of Jesus Christ, everyone who believes in him, in his death and resurrection, for the payment of their sins, receives forgiveness of sins. You see, the good news begins with Jesus Christ who came to save sinners like you and me. This is what this is about. So the good news starts with Jesus Christ. This past week, Thursday to be exact, I had an incredible opportunity to go back to the University of Southern California. I was asked to give my testimony to a fellowship group. I said, sure. Two of my favorite topics, you know, and you got Christ and you got USC. I said, absolutely. So I invited, I invited my family, and the six of us went. A friend was hosting us. And as we walked through the campus, there was all kinds of new buildings. I'm like, where am I? This is not the place that I remember. But similar brick as we strolled down memory lane, similar colors. Even got to run into a lot of uh, old friends. Even a player that I coached who's coaching there now. 
buildings, similar buildings. They look somewhat older now. Similar sounds. People are running around, excitement, the hustle and the bustle of beyond campus. And it brought my mind back to 1997 when I first went to the university as a student, became a player. And then throughout the 2000s when I became a coach. And really at that time, I was reminded how I had my dream coaching job way back then as a younger man. I loved it. I loved it. And really what spurred it on, seeing these faces, the relationships. And I I remember thinking to myself, I'm never going to leave this place. I love it here. I remember that. But the Lord had different plans. In 2010, the Lord moved us to Seattle. And which may have seemed like a great thing for everyone else, uh, as I've shared before, it was a season of brokenness for me. I mean, I felt alone. I was lamenting the changes, lamenting the change in job, change in address, location. I love California. Changing, lamenting, leaving church that I knew, friendships that I knew, lamenting certain deaths in my own life. And, and God gave me a time to get refined. And it ended up really being the best of times for me. And because God gave me more solidarity to myself, I was alone. I was spending my time going deeper into what I believed in. I, w- I didn't have people accessible to me to start asking them questions. I was just like, the Lord just took me deeper into the Bible. Because I knew what I believed. And faithful people have taught this to me, these things to me about Christianity over the years. And I, but I, I knew I needed to turn to the Bible because I didn't know exactly where these truths were housed. I knew some of them, but I didn't know all of them. I believed. Help me with my unbelief, so to speak. I was in that moment. So I turned to the Bible, and one of the topics that came up in my mind is, how do I know that Jesus Christ is actually God? Right? I know this is orthodox teaching, and we believe it, who are Christians. But I needed to know for myself through the Scriptures Can I say that Jesus Christ is God by hearing from him, from God himself through his holy word? And like a lightning bolt from heaven came down. I mean, the Lord started just opening my mind and my, uh, and in my heart to understand what the Bible was saying as I dove deeper myself. And so the second point is going to talk about how Jesus Christ is the son of God. We're just simply moving down that one verse. There's your outline in verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark. Orthodox Christianity believes that Jesus is God. Clearly, He's divine. He is is divine. We believe that God is one. However, we believe in a Trinitarian God. Three in one. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit make up one God. Are you going to ask me, how is that possible? I don't know, but I believe that. I I believe that's what the Bible teaches. But God is God and... And it'll be eternity trying to figure him out someday when we're staring at his face someday. But we believe this. This is what the Bible teaches. Now, throughout my journey in Seattle and other places, I've run into people, good people, nice people, who believe different things, who believe in a false gospel, a false religion. My Mormon friends would say that Jesus is the Son of God. Are we on the same page? As I hear more, they say that Jesus is a created son of God. Not the creator, not the eternal one, but a created being. So we're not talking about the same Jesus then. 
So when I see the Son of God, do I, how do we know not to take that route, church family? And this is an important thing that, that we need to understand. And I want to share some verses that were highlighted and radiated to my heart during that time. We believe that Jesus is the second member of the, of the Trinity, of the Godhead. And how do we know this? Well, here's some passages that come to mind. I think it's in your app as well, but I want to share these just maybe three portions of Scripture, quick portions of scriptures to for us to cement within our hearts, to seal within our hearts to know that Jesus Christ is God Himself. This is important. So that you just not trust in the preacher, but you're trusting what God's word says, for what God says about Himself. So in essence, the Son of God it means that Jesus is of the same status. The same nature with God the Father. Two distinct beings, but the same status and same nature. Let's turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, the gospel. John, go to your right. A couple books. John chapter 5, verse 17 and 18. I'll read that for us. This talks about how Jesus has the same status with God the Father. John 5, 17. Remember these. Write this down. Highlight this in your Bible. Write in the back of your Bible. That's where you take your notes. John 5, 17. But he answered them. Jesus answered them. My father is working until now, and I myself am working. Verse 18. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Why are they trying to kill Jesus? It says it right here. Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, their tradition, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. See, Jesus himself claimed to have equal status with the father. Jesus may have submitted to the father's salvific plan for the sins of man, but he is saying, I am equal with God. He knew exactly what he was saying, and the Jews understood exactly what he was saying. You're placed, you can claim to be equal with God. Jesus, you're right. You're right. Let's go to Hebrews here. Chapter 1. Go to your right. Right before the book of James. Right after Philemon. The one, one chapter book of Philemon. Hebrews 1 verse 3. This is talking about how Jesus shares the same nature with God the Father. Same nature with God the Father. Hebrews 1 3. And he is the radiance of his glory, the shininess, the brightness of God's glory, the Father's glory. And the exact, what does it say? Representation of his nature. And also Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty and high. Same, he is the exact representation of the Father's nature. Same nature with the Father. Same power, same omniscience. Everything he's got. Second, I mean, Colossians 2.9 says, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And this divine member of, uh, of the Trinitarian Godhead came to earth taking on human skin, human flesh, to become the God-man, fully God and truly God. I mean, fully and truly man. Col- Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. Let me read that for us. Last verse I'll share in this portion here. But For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bod- bodily form. This is God in 
in a human body. Colossians 2.9 Fully God or truly God, some people say, or fully man and or truly man. Since he is God now, there's an implication here in this whole essence of the, the gospel of Mark. I told you that Mark 1 verse 1 is the thesis or the heading for the entire book. Right now we, we focus in on Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. So through him we could receive salvation. But also we, Mark established right from the get-go that he is the Son of God and yet he is God. Since he is God, what do we do? How do we respond to him in our lives? We follow and, and obey him. We live for him. He is Lord. It's like saying the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So Mark makes a huge emphasis on following Jesus. Now, I was listening to a talk given, to, given by one of my seminary professors, Dr. Stephen Lawson, and he described a man named Archibald Alexander. Archibald Alexander, some of you guys may know his name. But in 1812, 1812, over 200 years ago, he became Princeton's first theology professor at Princeton Theological Seminary. At the time, it was known as the College of New Jersey. The College of New Jersey. And he, was a, he had a powerful theological mind, Dr. Lawson would describe. He had, he had a significant impact on the life of the church in America during those formative days of our nation. He dedicated his life to go deep into the depths, depths of theology and doctrine. He, he studied, he studied, he was learned, he was gifted. In his day, he was a theological giant. But on his deathbed, on his deathbed, and on the deathbed, there's always more clarity. Just like Paul, on his deathbed. On his deathbed, Archibald, Archibald Alexander saw things more clearly, more focused. And surrounded by his son, it's described fellow professors, his pastor. I would imagine these are some of the most important people in his life. He confessed that he still believes in everything that he believed before going to the deathbed. I believe it all still. But he said this one clarifying statement. All of my theology is resolved to this narrow compass meaning everything that I believe in points in one direction, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. All that theology, all that learning can be distilled into one idea. The whole Bible could be distilled into one concept, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And just like Archibald Alexander, Mark says, all my gospel is resolved to this narrow compass that the beginning of good news or the gospel is about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Same thing. And this idea gives us a portrait or gives us a guide to how we're going to look at the gospel of Mark. That Jesus Christ came to save sinners and Jesus Christ is the one who we follow. Discipleship. Those two big ideas are going to be talked about constantly throughout the Gospel of Mark. And these, these concepts will guide us as we go through this. But really, if you only grasp that concept that Jesus Christ came to save sinners like you and me, and Jesus Christ is God, therefore he is my Lord, 
That should influence our lives right now when we walk out of this room. This should be our narrow compass, that Jesus Christ is the good news, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This one Bible verse should guide us in everything that we do and how we think immediately right now. We don't need to be like Archibald Alexander. We don't need to be like John Mark. But we're on our way as long as we understand this narrow compass. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this time to preach through the gospel of Mark and start through this. By your grace, I pray, Lord, that we will have clear picture of your son, Jesus Christ. And we'll understand more and more what it means that he is God. The second member of the Trinity, second member of the Godhead. And we'll have a clear idea why that is good news. The greatest news. So we thank you, Father, for you are God of restoration, how you restored Mark and Peter. Thank you for using broken men and women throughout church history to encourage broken men and women today in today's church. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to, to die for sinners. Thank you for resurrecting him from the grave. Thank you that you make it clear that he is the son of God. He is divine. And so, Lord, I pray, restore us, build us up through, as we journey through the gospel of Mark, as we learn more about the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I pray, Father, for anyone in here or listening or watching someplace, and they know they're not saved people, that they would repent, they'll turn away from their sins and trust or believe, Jesus, that you are the God-man who died and rose again for the forgiveness of sins. And they will commit to following you as Lord and Savior. I pray these would contact a pastor or contact someone in the church to help them grow in their Christian walk. Father, I pray for any John Marks here today who need restoration, who need to be restored. I pray you bring Peters into their life to help restore them. I pray your words that were preached and talked about would just be encouraging them in a very unique way. I pray for broken relationships in the church that you would restore them just like you did with Paul and, and, and John Mark. Lord, we believe the gospel, the good news, can do these things because we know that you are a God of restoration and reconciliation. So Lord, we thank you for this time to preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen.